Okay, we're going to start today with a new series uh, in the book of Revelation, uh, not in the book of Revelation, see, there you go. We spent half a year looking at Revelation, and so I really wanted to, uh, uh, to do something that I thought would bracket uh, the book of Revelation, and so we're going to take a few weeks and look at the book of Genesis, just the first 11 chapters, what is called the primeval history. And uh, the creation account is in there, and probably in your Bible there's no, no two places that have gotten more bloodshed over them than the creation account in Genesis and the book of Revelation. And uh, it's very interesting uh, that those two places, there's a lots of controversy involved. And so uh, I'm going to do my very best to share with you what I think is, is a the, the way that the author of Genesis meant for it to be understood in their culture and also into the years to come, even beyond us. And so uh, I'll invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. It's also printed in your bulletin if you don't have your Bible. And uh, again, we have Bibles in the back. If you need a Bible, if you don't have one, or you want uh, this particular translation, the ESV, uh, take one. Uh, even though it says property of Christ the King in the front, we won't, we won't come and, and prosecute you. Uh, we want you to have a Bible. So if you need one, take, take one back there and, and put your name in it. Now hear God's word, and uh, I'll be only reading the first few verses, first five verses. We're not going to read the John passage. We'll get to that later. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning the first day. And now verse 31 And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished in all the vast array of them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we spent a long time in Revelation, almost half a year. Uh, I promise you this won't take that long, but we may spend uh, six or eight weeks, maybe ten weeks. Genesis 1 through 11 particularly, but I think the whole book of Genesis, uh, and, and we'll get into the, more of the book of Genesis maybe later in the year or next year, um, but the first 11 chapters certainly set the trajectory for all the rest of your Bible. And it is culminated in the 21st chapter Uh, and other places in Revelation, but particularly in the 21st chapter. Dr. Derek Kidner, who's written a wonderful little commentary, it's not a great big commentary, but it's very uh, rich in its exposition. Uh, He says that the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 through 11 and, and, and the rest, listen to this, the beginning is pregnant with the end. And the whole process present to God, who is the first 
and the last. What he's saying is God did not create and then kind of wait and see how things panned out. He had an idea in his mind of what he was going to accomplish through the entire creation, through all of creation and all of its history, all the way to the recreation. There is only plan A, there is no plan B. It is what God wanted it to be. Now that presents a lot of big questions, and I hope that you will think of them, write them down, come to the Q&A afterwards, ask your questions, come to the morning Bible study at 9. We're going into depth in some of this stuff. And it will help you immensely because you learn in Genesis what the rest of the Bible is about. And, and, and if you're one of those people that just kind of picks and chooses, you know, you flip over, I wonder what I ought to do today. And you flip it open and said, beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you. You're going to start looking around, where's Hezekiah? He's going to mislead me. Right? So you don't want to do that with your Bible. The Bible is what Dr. Kidner calls a literary whole. And so we're going to approach it like that. There's lots of debate with respect to the book of Genesis. In fact, I think if you get online and you start Googling Genesis and some of the other keywords, uh, you'll find out there's more heat than light. There's a continuum out there that goes everything from creation science all the way to theistic evolution and everything that you can imagine in between. There's young earth, old earth, evolution, 24 hours. You know, what is going on? And I'm not going to try to find a happy medium on that continuum any more than I did with... uh, Uh, the book of Revelation. I'm going to state clearly where I'm coming from and you take it or leave it. Uh, But I think we should let the Bible speak on its own terms and not impose our own 20th, 21st century ideas onto the text. Listen to this. One One of the best exegetes of the Old Testament. Brilliant. One of my professors. The historicity and scientific accuracy has been the subject of much controversy and debate. Questions concerning the relationship of Genesis creation account and science can only be addressed, listen, can only be addressed intelligently by determining the literary genre of Genesis 1 through 2. What is the genre? We've talked about it in there. The Bible is filled with literary genre. There's historical narrative. There are poetry. There's wisdom literature. There's uh, uh, epic narratives. Uh, There are psalms and proverbs, laments. It's full of various genres. There are prayers. Amy sang the prayer, the Lord's Prayer today, beautifully. Prayers are prayers. Proverbs are not promises. Proverbs are what? Proverbs. And Proverbs are observations. They are not saying, if you raise your child up in the way that he should go, then it will happen, because I promise you. They may not. They may go sideways. And you'll go, oh, what did I do wrong? You did nothing wrong. They have a little, evil little heart. And until they're born again, you know, what? What are you going to do with it? All right, so Proverbs are Proverbs. Psalms are Psalms. Poetry is poetry. And they need to be handled a certain way. 
Questions concerning the relationship of Genesis account and science can only be addressed if we determine the literary genre. Generally, listen, generally the creation account is slotted into one of four categories. I'm going to give them to you. There's probably more, but these are the four that you all are probably hearing in your daily talks with people and maybe in your own mind. One is myth. The next one is science. The third is history. And the fourth is theology. So if you pick up any commentary, and I have many, and you pick up any commentary, some of them written by creation scientists, some of them written by theistic evolutionists, and everything in between, and there are a lot of things in between, generally they will go into these four slots where you put Genesis chapter 1 the creation account up to verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 3. I'm going to talk just about these few verses. So what about myth? Is Genesis chapter 1 a myth? If you define, there are different ways to define myth, but if you define myth as something fanciful or untrue, just a myth, like Aesop's fables, you know, talking lions and things like that. Those are myths. Myths can communicate truth, but the Bible is not, Genesis 1 particularly, is not communicating anything that is fanciful or untrue. Okay, is it science? The subject, and here's something I want you to listen to, folks. The subject of Genesis is God himself not the forces of nature. There, it's not. And if you try to make it the forces of nature, how the creation came about scientifically, you are already going to be off the track and there's going to be loads of things you do not understand. Not just in Genesis, but throughout your Bible. The subject of the Genesis creation account is God, not the forces of nature. Not how the world was created, but who created it, why he created it. Then he talks about how he created it, and the only information he gives us is that he did it this way, by his word and by his spirit. The end. There's no more, his, there's no more scientific information than that. Not a shred. Science cannot, never has been able to, and today still cannot prove the existence of God. We cannot prove the existence of God. If you could prove the existence of God, what would you be proving? You'd be proving something other than God. God, by definition, cannot be proved. God, by definition, cannot be comprehended. When I mean comprehended, I mean completely comprehended or understood. God, on the other hand, can be and is regularly by everybody, even fishermen who couldn't read and write, all the way to geniuses like me. We can apprehend him. We can get our arms around him. We can understand what we need to know for life and faith. So is it science? No. Is it just history? Well, yes, but not the kind of history that we're used to hearing. It was written thousands of years ago in a different language. It wasn't written in English. 
And it was written to people that were pre-scientific, into a world that was pre-scientific, and it is the height of arrogance for us to say in the 20th and 21st century, since, actually since the Enlightenment, it is the height of arrogance for Western Enlightenment people to say, oh, now we can understand the creation, now we can figure it out, either by creation science or theistic evolution or any other kind of science. If we were able to get in a time machine, I've told you this in our Sunday school class before, if we could get in a time machine and go back and watch how God did it, no one would understand what they're saying. You just wouldn't understand it. And we may never understand it because God is the only one who understands many of these things. But he doesn't leave us ignorant. He gives us truth. So listen. History, yes, but it doesn't resemble modern conceptions of history. The narrator, particularly in chapter 1, the argument I'm going to make is the narrator is saying only a few things. He's saying, one, that God created and that he created everything good. That's his main objective to the audience, both ancient and modern. I created everything I did it by fiat, ex nihilo, from nothing. I didn't need the blood of a demon and mix it with the clay of the earth and come up with people. I didn't need to have the gods from the underworld fighting the gods of the upper world and then creating. I didn't need a dewdrop like in Buddhism. You know, it's a dewdrop and, and the whole world is a dewdrop. And there's all these ideas. No, God created from nothing everything that is. And he sustains it by His Word and power. I'm sure that you heard a few years ago that scientists figured out how to create life. Did you all hear that? So they went, they've got a committee together and they went to God and they said, we don't need you anymore. We know how to create life now. And God said to the scientists, let me see you do it. And so they went over to their, their lab bench and they got a little bowl of dirt and they start to mess with it. And God says, wait, wait, wait a minute. Get your own dirt. You know, science is very arrogant sometimes. And so are people that tell fairy tales and say that they're true. And so we need to be reading the text as it is. Let it come to us as it is. And then take it or leave it. So is it myth Eh, depends on how you... Is it science? There are scientific things in the Bible, but not too many, and, and really, I would say, not, not really for that. Is it history? Yes, but it's ancient history. It was written to people thousands of years ago. Has to be put in that context. Finally, is it theological? Well, of course it's theological. It's about God, but it's not completely theological because there's other things involved. It's much more than theology. So I don't think Genesis 1, and I'm giving you my opinion and a whole breadth of, gr of great scholarship, that Genesis chapter 1 doesn't neatly fit into any one of those categories and includes elements of all plus more. It is a magnificent, listen to what one Old Testament scholar said, the creation account, I love this, the creation account is an artistic 
literary representation of creation intended to fortify God's covenant with creation. In other words, it's there to explain to readers and hearers of the story who God is, why He created. God's relationship to all that you see, to the farthest extent of the universe, the cosmos, everything, including our planet, including space, and everything else. It represents truths about origins in human language. God is condescending to speak to us in human language, not in scientific, necessarily scientific terms, or in, in, in such allegorical poetic that you would think, oh my gosh, this is a myth. No, it's very crisp, amazing beautiful. Listen. So that the covenant community, that's us, the people of God throughout eternity, may have a proper worldview and be wise. So that you can be wise. For what purpose? Unto salvation. So that you can understand what God's plan. And when I say salvation, immediately most evangelicals, particularly here in the United States, when you hear salvation, what you think about is being saved from your sin and going to be in heaven, right? That is not what salvation... Salvation is much more than that. We'll talk about it as we go. It represents the world coming into being through God's proclamation so that the world depends... He wants us to to know this, that the world depends on His will, His purpose, and His presence. So, here's where we're going to start. This is an introduction, and I'm not going to say too much more about this. The characters in the Bible, including Genesis chapter 1 and forward, every character is real. The human characters are real flesh and blood. They are not myths. They're not imaginary. They're real. Adam and Eve are real people. The events, listen carefully, are actual and historical. The genres are that are being used, particularly in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and then in 3, are various. They're not all one genre. They're complex. You're going to see the complexity of it. It's going to blow your... You're going to fall in love with the book of Genesis like I do and have. Being inspired by the Holy Spirit, we should expect it. You should expect that if this is authored by God the Holy Spirit through His prophet Moses and Moses' helpers to be relevant, listen, to every age, race, culture, and people at any time of history, we must be careful not to make Genesis or the Bible in general answer questions that are not being asked. Another scholar said, we don't learn much from a text when we ask it questions that it was not written to answer. Like we did with Revelation. We spent half a year in Revelation. People bring all kinds of stuff. They want Revelation to tell them things that are not the question. And I went to extreme lengths to explain that to you. And if you want to be people of the book, and that's what they used to call us, I don't know about now, but years ago, Christians were called people of the book because we loved our Bible and we respected it. 
And so that's what I'm going to try to communicate to you. It's not written to answer questions that are not being asked. It's about deeper issues than science or biological or even material origins. It's, it's beyond that, and I will show you. It tells us who created why and then partially how in understandable language that is both, listen, both prosaic, in other words, it's just a narrative, and poetry. It's mixing them up. It's very unique. All right, so very quickly, look at your text. It's either in your notes uh, or if you have your Bible, look at it. What I'm going to do, and I, I haven't done this before with, uh, uh, with you all, but what I'm going to do is run through line by line. We're going to go through it quickly together, and I'm going to read it to you in English, but I'll explain to you what the words mean and maybe a little bit more t teaching uh, type thing because these words have meaning and they were picked by a literary genius. Certainly Moses was involved, but he had, he had people helping him and it, the people that had memorized the old tales going back to prehistory. They had oral tradition that was amazing. In the beginning is a word in Hebrew. It's one word. And it means in the beginning... The entire event happened. All six creation days. There wasn't anything before it that we know about. There was no gap in between verse 1 and verse 2. Nothing like that. The author is simply saying, in the beginning, God, and he uses the word Elohim, he uses it 35 times in 34 verses. God is the subject, not the forces of nature. Elohim. Bereshit, Elohim, bara. In the beginning, God created. Elohim is a plural of Eloi. It's a plurality of majesty. It is not a good place to say this is teaching the Trinity. We can look back at it and say, well, you know, maybe the Trinity is involved, but that's not where you start with the Trinity. God was speaking to a court, a heavenly court of angels and who knows, seraphim and cherubim and all these creatures up there. Who knows what was up there? And he speaks with the royal we, like Queen Elizabeth. We are going to do this and we are going because he, she is speaking as the sovereign. And they use the plural we. It's a majestic word. And God's existence is assumed in the book of Genesis. He never tries to prove that, he's exi that He exists. Because you can't. We can give you lots of evidence why we should believe that God exists. And we can give you loads of reasons. There have been plenty of books written over this. But He doesn't try to prove His existence. Because why? Because He's God. What, is He going to tell you that He exists? Really? No. He doesn't need to prove it. The world comes into being because God in the beginning created bara. This word bara is only used of God. It's never used of anyone else. It is synonymous with another Hebrew word, hasa, uh, which means to make. And he uses them sometimes interchangeably. But make can be used by almost anybody. But only bara is used of God. Only he creates by fiat, by power, ex nihilo, from nothing. We also are created. Do you know that one of the things, we'll talk about this in a few weeks, but, but, but sidebar. 
One of the things that is included in the image of God that human beings are made is because we can create. Do you realize that? We can't create from nothing. But when Tolstoy wrote War and Peace, he created a whole world. When Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, when C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, they created something that did not exist. When Dave paints a painting, it's a creation that did not exist before he created it. Now, he used tools and Tolstoy and Tolkien. They all used stuff to do. So that's different than the way God did. But only we, of all the animals that we know, create in that way for nothing other than beauty. Not utilitarian. We're not chimpanzees. Well, some of you are. But, but with, with, a, with a reed and sticking it down a termite hole and bringing it up and going like this. You know, that's great. That's ingenious. Good for them. But he doesn't try to make the reed beautiful. He doesn't weave it into a hat. You see the difference? Okay, I hope you do. God created. He, he does this. Listen to what one guy says. It's just beautiful. Oh, my gosh. He says, in creation, God reveals his immeasurable power. Immeasurable means what? Can't be measured. Okay, good. Re- reveals his immeasurable power, his might, his bewildering imagination. In other words, who, who could imagine? We can't even imagine the way he imagines. His bewildering imagination and his wisdom, his immortality, his transcendence, and ultimately leaves the finite mortal, that would be you and I, in mystery. Heavens and earth, shamayim heretz, the heavens and the earth. All that is, the organized universe. This is the end of verse 1. He created the heavens and the earth, And earth, the word heretz is used three different ways in the Bible. The context is very clear. When it's tied with heaven and earth, when that phrase is used, heaven and earth means everything that is. But when he uses earth, it could mean just the planet or it could mean just a patch of dirt. Okay? The the newspaper in Israel, do, do any of you know what the newspaper is in Israel? Their main newspaper? Heretz. The land. Okay? It can be used those ways. In verse 1, it's used of the cosmos. Everything it is. Not talking about the planet. That will come later in verse uh, 9 and 10. Then he uses this very famous phrase. The earth, he created the heavens and the earth without form and void. I've talked about it to you before. The, the Hebrew is tohu v'bohu. Tohu Vav, consecutive, and bohu. It is formless and void. It is the opposite. Now listen to me, because this is where the beauty of this narrative gets to be extraordinarily beautiful. The writer, Moses, whoever was writing it down, is saying, the earth was tohu v'bohu. It was without form and void. He's saying it's the opposite of the heaven and the earth. 
There was something not right. In fact, tohu bubohu, some scholars say it is dreadful chaos. What it means is that there's a, a, tur- uh, a, a turgidity, a, a formlessness that needs to be not eliminated. Listen carefully, folks. God does not eliminate it. What does he do with tofu bohu? He separates it in land and water and sea and sky. He controls it. He moves it to where he wants it to be and how he wants it to be so that its meaning and its import to humanity can remain. He's not talking scientifically. It's the opposite of heaven and earth. It's a narrative, it's a word that is saying, I'm going to separate light and dark, death and life. I'm going to separate good, inhabitable land from from land that is right now underwater, under dreadful chaos. He's not making a statement about evil or good or bad at this point. He's not bringing that up. He's not introducing us to anything. He's just telling us what is. It's disordered. It's empty. It's unproductive. It's unformed, unfilled, uninhabited, and uninhabitable. It's not able to support life. It is tohu vabohu. And darkness was over the face of the deep. The deep is a, is a word for the abyss. It's the opposite of light. It's the opposite of land. It's the deep, the dark, the mysterious, the unproductive, the dreadful. In other words, the conditions in verse 1 are describing a creation that needs God's ordering and separating and creative power so that it will sustain life, you and me. That's all it's saying. And it's saying it in in magnificent language. Verse 2, the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. I'm sure some of you have heard this. The Hebrew word uh, for hovering is the same word they use for a mother bird. In fact, it's it's used other places uh, like an eagle. I don't know if you've seen the Nature Channel or National Geographic. You ever seen the the eagles? They're in their, their nest and what are they doing? They're flapping their wings and they'll hover above and they'll They'll flap their wings and that, they fluff up the, uh, the nest, get all the debris out, the dead uh, feathers and the fluff from the little baby chicks, and they, they freshen it up. Or they will, they will hover and protect. They're, they're there in their, in their capacity of watching over the Spirit of God, the Ruach, the wind, the Ruach, is hovering over this water. And God said, let there be light. In other words, by command, by his word, by his power, he just says it and it happens. You know, everything that we do, folks, everything, every human action is tangential. In other words, if I want light, what do I have to do? What do you do? You walk across the room and you flip a switch. Or if you want to eat, you have to get food and eat. Right? You can't, unless you're Harry Potter. Then you can go poof and it just appears, right? But even he's using something. I don't know what he's using. He's using a dumb wand. But 
He's not making it out of nothing. But God does. God says, let there be light, and it happens. Do you know in the ancient Near East, I'm sure you all know this, what did everybody in the ancient Near East, and even today in many parts of the world, what did they worship? What were their gods? Sun, moon, stars, comets, hurricanes, storms, chaos, the ocean, forces of nature. Right? And here you have Moses writing a narrative into that world and saying, No! Elohim! Barah. Elohim speaks and He creates everything that you think are God's. And they're under His control. The tohu v'bohu, the light, everything you see is His. And God saw that it was good. The darkness, the abyss are still present. They're still there. The tohu v'bohu is now confined. It's not just running wild anymore. It is now confined and bordered by land and sky which will later be inhabited in the coming days of creation, inhabited by living beings that God blesses and said, it's good, it's good, it's good. God separated light from darkness so that they would have distinct tasks. He called the light day, the darkness he called night. In other words, he's sovereign over both day and night. And I hope that you're not thinking scientifically. Well, I guess it was bright out and then the sun set. And then the sun rose because where is the sun? It doesn't exist. Not yet. It's created on day four. So there's something more here than just a, a line of chronology that was written to 21st century scientific people who are wringing their hands over, over evolution. Oh my goodness. If they prove evolution, then my Christianity doesn't exist. That is not true. It doesn't matter. God's not worried about the evolutionists. You know who Stephen Jay Gould is? How many of you know who Stephen Jay Gould is? Honestly, one, two, three, four, five. God help us. How many of you know who Christopher Hitchens is? Oh, there you go. Yeah, he, his book was, was better than Gould. Okay, did you know that Stephen Jay Gould and Christopher Hitchens are now Christians? They're in hell. But they're, I shouldn't have said that, that's not nice. They are believers today. They are believers, not Christians in the sense that they're going to be in heaven, but they are believers. You see what I'm saying? God isn't afraid of these challenges, but he doesn't want us making up stuff in order to counter the challenge. You with me? Okay? He doesn't want us saying more than what his Bible says. Say what I say and leave it there. And that's what we're going to try to do. He separates. Look at, what it, look at how, it's, how it's worded. He said, he saw, he separated, he called. By naming the positive life support systems, light, atmosphere, land, as well as their counterparts, darkness, chaotic waters, and so on, God shows he's sovereign over everything. He is sovereign over everything. Good, bad, evil, everything that exists. He is sovereign. 
over those things. And in verse 31, he concludes, we'll look at some of the more, more next week. He saw everything he made, it was very good. And the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. What do you learn? First of all, listen carefully. You cannot possibly find meaning in your life unless you understand how God looks at his world and how he looks at you. You are always going to be prone to idolatry, trying to squeeze meaning and purpose out of things, the creation rather than the creator. Romans chapter 1, we are always pushed in that direction where money becomes our security or our looks become our security or what set of theology we ascribe to or... on and on and on, whether my kids are good or not good, whether my marriage is good or not good, whether my, you could go on and on. We are always trying to define ourselves by something other than how God defines us. And you know how he looks at his, at his whole world and everything in it? Good and very good. And that's why we celebrated the resurrection last week and it is why we we went to extreme lengths to show that the book of Revelation is about what? New creation. It gives you meaning, purpose, vision for life, a way of seeing the creation and ourselves, regardless of what time of of age of history you happen to live. We're in a a moment when evolution and all of that is, is, is presenting challenges to us. And we're answering the wrong questions when we should be answering the question of meaning and value and truth and how in the world will you stand before a transcendent God if you break his law? How will you do that? You see that in, we're going to look at that in chapter 3. It provides a vocabulary. Genesis 1 provides us a vocabulary, language, foundation so that we can relate to God and his creation and it's not limited to scientific means or any other kind of means. It's taking it at his, at his word. The world is good. Work is good. Creation is good. Creativity is good. Darkness and evil and chaos, wherever you see them, it is meant to be opposed by you and I. We are to push it back. God did not put Adam and Eve in the earth. He put them in the land of Eden And not only in the land of Eden, he put them in a garden in the land of Eden. And then he said to go out and plenish the earth and deal with tohu vabohu. Fill it. You're going to see this next week. Fill it up with my image. With my goodness, spread the garden. Make the garden go out there into every until the earth is covered with the garden. Do you see it? That, my friends, is a vision that you can live for. Now, you know the rest of the story. Man was created in his image, but we messed up. And we'll talk about this in great detail. But if you doubt what I'm saying, and I understand you don't all have to agree with me, although I'm right, no, you don't. Like the book of Revelation, you know, you can take your, take your shot. It really doesn't matter. If you want to be a young earth 
24-hour day creationist, go for it. If you want to be a theistic evolutionist, go for it. It really doesn't matter because the Bible's not teaching either one. It's not talking about that. And I can prove it to you. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, prostanteon. He was facing God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life, His life, that life was the light of the world. Was John being literal? Was Jesus a word, letters? No. But he is the creation and the creator. Jesus Christ is the imminence of God in and for us. And when we fell, God didn't just wave a magic wand and recreate everything. He sent his son into this world into the tohuvabohu, into the darkness, the abyss, the grave, so that we could live in the light. Look, the light, the life of Jesus. Will you trust him? I hope you will. Otherwise, you're going to live in tohuvabohu. And who wants to be there? Not me. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thanks for this wonderful book you gave us and the beauty of it, the majesty of it, the glory of it, beyond anything that we could ever imagine, revealing to us your word and your spirit, your son who created all things and your Holy Spirit that ordered and separated the light from the dark so that we could live in the light even as he is in the light. Help us, please. Save us. Have mercy on us. Grant us your grace, we pray. Amen.